0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Magu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guest is Adrian Woolridge, co author with John Micklethwaite of the book, The Wake Up Call. Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It, published by Harper Via this year in 2020. Welcome, Adrian.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, It's it's a real pleasure. Now, I know many listeners may not know you by your given name, but rather by your column names in The Economist, where you're the management editor and Schumpeter columnist. Uh, You're also the formerly The Economist. uh, Sorry, yeah. Sorry,
1: uh, I'm I'm now the, um, I can tell you a little bit about this. I'm now the political editor of The Economist and author of a column called Badgett. Okay. (laughs) Which is about modern British political politics and British life in the tradition of the great editor of The Economist from the middle of the 19th century called Walter Badgett. Before that, I wrote about management and business and wrote a column called Schumpeter. And before that... I wrote about America uh, and wrote a column called Lexington. So I seem to have spent much of my life under uh, assumed names and assumed identities writing write, write, writing columns, you know. So it's a, yeah. it's a, pecu- it's a peculiar tradition of The Economist to have these, um, these named columns.
0: Yes, yes, and, uh, and rather, um, you know, eminent names as well.
1: Oh, in, 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 indeed. I mean, Schumpeter was, of course, the great prophet and analyst of, creative destruction, a great, uh, a great thinker about the nature of capitalism. And Walter Badgett, as I said, was editor of The Economist in the middle of the 19th century, when Britain was at its sort of prime as a, as, as a global power, and also wrote an absolutely magnificent book called The English Constitution, which mm-hmm. is about as boring a subject as you could have, but it's written with extraordinary panache and brio and is a fascinating analysis of the nature of power.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, with you know, with those things under your belt, plus you know your other achievements, you you certainly must be one of the most influential men in the world. <laughs> Would you agree?
1: Uh, I, I I think it's <laughs> extremely kind of you to say so. If you influence out of writing columns or or, or or books, that is. But I certainly haven't done anything in the real world of of, of politics or administration or affairs. So. It depends. Somebody, I think it was Shelley, who once said that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of mankind. So, if mm-hmm. so, the unacknowledged legislators of mankind, then there's some influence there. But uh, I, I sometimes rather doubt it.
0: Uh, well, well, I, I know your your columns are are very widely read and um, and very much anticipated. Uh, so, what you say does matter. Uh, thank you. So, yeah, um, now. For our audience who who uh, you know may not be as familiar uh, with the background and, and also just in general with the book, uh, what we like to do is we like to ask the authors to explain you know from their background what brought them to the subject of the book. I, I know the the Economist you know deals with these things, but but is there a particular uh, story or anxiety that um, that brought you to this subject?
1: Yes, a very good question. My co-author and I have been worried for a long time that people um, have not been thinking seriously enough about the importance of the state and about state capacity. The people on the right, since Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, have tended to dismiss the state as an encumbrance. Um, Ronald Reagan famously said, the, the the most terrifying words in the English language, are, I'm from the government, and I'm here to help.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that sort of set a whole tradition going on of thinking on the right, which was that all we need to do is limit the size of government, get rid of government jobs, contract out government functions to the market, shrink the state. And as one um, American right has said, shrink the state till it's so small that it can be drowned in a bathtub. I think that's been quite a, a common view, not quite as, 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 as insensitively expressed as that, but a quite mm-hmm. a common view on the right. And that's coincided with a lot of people um, saying that they don't want to go into government because government is irrelevant, that they want to go into the private sector because it's the private sector that makes the future. So at the same time as you've got that view on the right, you've got the view on the left that government is really about making people happy through welfare. Um, government is, is is a sort of maternal thing that looks after people when they're in trouble. Uh, and what we began to think is actually there is a very robust case that government really matters. It matters because it looks after people, but it matters also because It organizes society because it projects power abroad, because it keeps, you know, the show on the road. And we worried that, you know, in between a rather soft-minded left and a rather negligent right, people weren't thinking enough about the importance of the state, about the importance of state capacity, and about the importance of having a really sort of hard-edged approach to the state. How can we make it not just compassionate, but make it efficient and effective? And good at its job, and so we've been thinking about that for a long time. Then suddenly, along comes coronavirus. You know, starting at the end of last year and coming to the west uh, in but January, February uh, of this year, and then uh, and then you know spreading universally, becoming a global pandemic. And we looked at what the pandemic was doing, and we said, "Wait a minute, this is actually a." Test of state capacity. Government, good government, makes all the difference between whether you live or whether you die. This is actually proving our thesis that government really matters and proving it in the most sort of uh, unpleasant, unpleasant sort of way. So it was really from this sense that that, that, that we've been thinking for a long time about government. And this was the sort of the test that's that, that government is everything we thought it was. Um, and then we also found that the 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 difference between different parts of the world and how well they had uh, responded to the COVID crisis reveals something interesting about the relative capacities of the Far East and the West in terms of state effectiveness.
0: Yes, I mean, uh, as you know, at its uh, at, you know working with the Economist, you would have dealt uh, over the years um, with. Y- you know, with globalization, like and a lot of the debates in the 1990s after the the end of the Cold War, like liberal democracy, the Asian values debates of the time, exactly. you know, the the East Asia model, the rise of the Asian Tigers, etc. So I I know that the Economist, the World Bank, you know, and all, all these organizations over the years have been going back and forth. I remember in the 90s at some point, I think it was the late 90s when the HDI was. No, no, the the AGI was earlier, but um, they were talking, you know, bringing government back into globalization. So, so you have been dealing with this for a long time. Yes. And what I'm interested in is how much did you return to some of your earlier arguments and revive them, uh, or and how much did you have to sort of change or, or come up with new ideas for this book?
1: I think that what we did in this, uh, because of the coronavirus, was to have our basic hunch that the state matters, that the state still has a lot of power even in, in a global economy, and that the effectiveness of the state is something that we should take incredibly seriously. We had that massively reinforced. We'd been thinking that for a long time, but we hadn't quite realized until the coronavirus came came, it, came in just how, dif- how how important it was um you, I, you, you were talking about the 1990s so i you know i remember a time when people were saying in the 1990s that government had almost been abolished That it didn't mm-hmm. that the only thing that mattered was the uh, was was global markets that government couldn't do anything to, to shape those markets or guide those markets or resist those markets um and that it was all about the private sector and we could basically forget about the about the about the public sector and you know remember you know uh, james carville uh, bill clinton's sort of political advice saying that he wanted to be reincarnated as the bond market saying mm-hmm. it was the bond market that made all the decisions in the world and that the american government the world's most powerful government was 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 simply an adjunct of the 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 bond market and we even back in the 1990s we were saying wait a minute the government governments actually matter and over the subsequent period uh, you know we've only had that intuition reinforced you know it was the government government action that, that, that got us out of the global financial crisis. And it was government action that made all the difference between success and lack of success in terms of uh, dealing with the coronavirus crisis. And one of the things that we, we saw basically uh, with the coronavirus crisis, that it was as though the whole of the world was given an examination at the same time. Everybody had to sit down and take exactly the same examination and see how well they did. And the results of that examination were really dramatic and were really um, surprising in certain ways because a lot of countries that you would have expected would have done really well in the corona examination, actually did quite badly. And a lot of countries that you might have thought might not have done well did did extremely well. And I think the the big pattern that we saw was that uh, European countries did less well than you would have expected. And Far Eastern countries did much better than you might have expected. And you can look at the numbers of people who, uh, who have died as a result of this, and you see enormous regional variations. So um, in the United States, you've got more, uh, a death rate now of more than 800 per million. Um, in Britain, a death rate of more than 800 per million. In Germany... Uh, more than about 140 per million, a better, a better rate, but still quite high. Now, if you go to the Far East and look at China, uh, look at Singapore, um, look at Vietnam, even you're seeing far, far lower figures than that, um, and not, not just a little bit lower, but but dramatically lower. So, in Singapore at the moment, they're having a great national debate because the number is gone up to five per million. Uh, in China, the Chinese claim it's three per million. Now, perhaps the Chinese are exaggerating a bit. They tend to put the best possible gloss on this. But even if they're exaggerating by a factor of 10, uh, and it's 30 per million, it's still much, much, much lower than the, than the United States. Um, Taiwan, I think, hasn't had a single case of coronavirus since, uh, for, for the last 200 days, Vietnam, which is a uh, quite a poor emerging market country, has con- 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 controlled it, kept it at very, very low numbers. Or if you look at some cities and compare cities, if, if, if they, these numbers don't really work, look at cities: uh, New York, um, London, and New York, London, and Seoul. Um, are roughly the same size as cities. They're all very vibrant cities. They're all very lively cities, lively, lively, crowded cities. The death rate in Seoul is about, the the number of people who've died in Seoul from this disease is less than 100. In New York City, it's 22,000, in excess of 22,000. In London, it's in excess of 6,000. So extraordinary differences between um, the Far East, and the West, Europe, and the United States. And I think that tells us something very, very important about the state of the world. And that important thing is that we in the West um, are failing at the basic job of state maintenance, uh, state capacity building, uh, delivering public services. And countries in the emerging world, in the emerging far east in east asia are succeeding much better than we have we are and that tells us a lot about the balance of power in the future
0: right and so that takes us i mean well that sort of explains the the title of the book the wake-up call because it it's it is a sort of uh an existential um you know crisis you're you you seem to be conjuring up is that correct
1: I think existential is a very good word. It is an existential crisis, and it's a sort of potentially a civilizational turning point um, in the sense that uh, from, I, I, if you go back to the year 1500, then the world's dominant power in terms of power, in terms of civilization, in terms of sophistication, uh, in terms of knowledge, was probably China. China accounted for... About a quarter, uh, about a fifth, twenty percent, I would say, of the world's GDP. It's got the world's largest capital city uh, in Beijing. It's got the world's biggest, most sophisticated encyclopedia, which they've been compiling for a very long period of time. Um, and it's got by far the world's most sophisticated civil service. You know, this extraordinary Mandarin class of people who are selected by examinations, you know, taken by the, you know, the ten percent of the entire country mm-hmm. people right mm-hmm. across the country taking these exams so china is the center of the world then and by comparison uh the west europe america uh or well, america is, is 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 then um you know um a, a land of aboriginal peoples essentially yeah europe is um a backwater of feudal mm-hmm. fighting with each other kings being deposed bloody civil wars wars of religion all sorts of things it's a very backward place compared with with china and i think what's the story of the much of the world since 1500 has been the story of the advance of the west and if you explain the vo- advance of the west um some of it has come because of uh capitalism some of it has 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 come because of I don't know, liberty, freedom, scientific inquiry, freedom of ideas, the enlightenment and, and, and the rest of it. But a significant amount of the reason why the West made advances uh, in these years is because of it, the development of state capacity and the reinvention of the state to bring it in line with the needs of its, its people. And if you'd like, I can go through the various iterations of the state over that that long period of time, to, just to show how dynamic the Western state has been.
0: Yeah, well, um, definitely. I um, yeah. Well, why don't we go through it now? Uh, uh, th- that's fine. That is something I wanted to discuss. And yeah, so please do. Yeah, me. I'll do that, and
1: then we can get we can yeah discussion. Because what what the, the first thing that happens in the West is the idea of the nation state, which has a monopoly of power. So the barons, the feudal barons, are brought under control. The king uh, asserts his power over his territories. He establishes a monopoly of violence. And you get the imposition of law and order internally. Um, And you get the projection of power externally with uh, European countries beginning to explore the world uh, and beginning to conquer the world. Um, And indeed, you you get the creation of the European empires. As a, as a result of that. And the fig, figure that we associate this with in this book is the figure of Thomas Hobbes, who writes this wonderful book, Leviathan, in 1651, which argues that the fundamental role of the state is to keep order and to protect people from, from an unnecessary death through through violence and social breakdown. Then, um, in that's in the 16th century, uh, I'm talking about onwards. Mm-hmm. Then in the middle of the... Uh, 18th century um, to the middle of the 19th century, you get the development of the liberal state, which argues that the state should be efficient, it should be accountable in some way to its people, and that it should provide various basic services while putting an emphasis on liberty. That's the state of the American Revolution. Uh, That's the Mm -hmm. the French Revolution, although that was more messy than the American Revolution. It's also the state that was created in Britain in the middle of the 19th century when they introduced open competition to jobs in the civil service, when they cut back on patronage, corruption, sinecures, and all of that. And we regard this as being sort of symbolized by John Stuart Mill, who in his great book On Liberty says that the function of government is to basically preserve freedom And that the government should allow people to do anything they want to do, uh, unless it means harming other people. Then, in the early uh, late nineteenth, early twentieth century, you get the 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 beginnings of the welfare state, um, which the welfare state basically says you know it's basically the Hobbesian state updated. It says we have to protect people. Our fundamental duty as a government is to protect people from unnecessary harm, but that means basically providing education, pensions. Uh, uh, healthcare, all the sort of things that uh, enable people to to, to to live their lives without unnecessary suffering, starvation, early death, and things like that. And that is something that the the, the the socialists called the Fabians really articulated. So, a succession of reinventions of the state to serve new and expanding social purposes. And all of that time, when this is going on, um, you have the Chinese state stagnating, looking inwards. Um, the, the, the Mandarin civil servants are taking the same examinations as they did in the 15th century, um, the same questions, the same Confucian texts. The, 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 the emperor doesn't want any dealings with the rest of the world. It's a country that's frozen in aspic because the government is frozen in aspic. And so I think that was the, that was the history of the world in important ways, a dynamic state reinventing itself, constantly improving itself on the one hand in the West, also expanding around the world, and a static state that looks inwards in, in China, setting the tone of much of the Far East. And that is the case right until uh, the 1960s, when history begins to change, the, the West state begins to stagnate, the state in the, in China and the Far East begins to develop. And that's really the long historical background uh, to what happened with COVID, it's why COVID could potentially be a global turning point, a historical turning point in which we go back to the 15th century when China and the Far Eastern states were number one, and the West again sinks back into irrelevance.
0: Right. That's a that's a great overview, and yeah, um, I, I definitely want to unpack some of that, uh, sure. or a, a lot of that. I, I think it's a. Uh, it's it, it's 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 very very uh thought provoking and raises uh many interesting questions but let let's start off just even with the covid crisis today before mm-hmm. we get to the 16th century I, I do definitely want to go there but um if we start off with the um with the numbers now i i'm from Trinidad and Tobago here in the Caribbean, and and I've I've actually written a, a piece about COVID in the Caribbean for the Roundtable Journal in London for the Commonwealth, and, and uh, this was in May. And in looking at the the Caribbean region for um, for that time, so the first few months uh, for the you know region of six million people, so it's not that big uh, of the thirteen um, countries, we had fifty deaths, which is very very. Small, yes. uh, uh, and uh, small island developing states around the world generally have very low numbers. And when we look at um, uh, some of the data, at least what's available here on the Worldometers info, which which appears to be something that a lot of people refer to, yeah. uh, you know, you have states like Western Sahara, Burkina Faso, Niger. Um, Uganda, Mozambique, with very, very low uh, reported deaths per million of, of population. So you know, one wonders uh, some sometimes as to you know how much of this is a statistical artifact uh, in terms of the numbers itself. Because even within the states, people talk about difference between Democrat states and Republican states, or you know, cities and the countryside, and 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 these are the Variations. Um, uh, I, I, you know, the the numbers. I I I know that uh, you're not wholly relying on the numbers, and that even if you adjust for lying, inflation, underreporting, etc., that that there is this um, this great uh, difference here. But um, do do you have anything to to say about the numbers in general? For uh, yeah, that's fascinating.
1: That's fascinating what you say. And I think that there are two qualifications I um, make to these the general conclusions that we're drawing from the numbers. Um, one is that small island states, by virtue of being islands, have got a capacity to protect themselves from this disease. And you will sometimes get much much lower numbers in those countries which are which are good at being able to regulate the inflow of people and isolating themselves. But-
0: I will tell you from firsthand experience: our it's health system case. is
1: not. If that's not the case that's with our laundry.
0: healthcare system, mm-hmm. but right. so you
1: go on. Uh, the uh, the other qualification I was going to make, although I now withdraw my first qualification, <laughs> is that SARS, The countries that have had experience of SARS, which is countries in the Far East um, do have an advantage in this, they've dealt with one pandemic, which is which is you know tr- transmitted through through breathe, breathing. Uh, and so they know what to do about that, and they're, they've created a culture of wearing masks and things like that. Um, but I admit that there are obviously small countries that, 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 that make generalizations difficult, but it does look extraordinary that a country the size of the United Kingdom should have done so badly. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: It does look extraordinary that a country of the sophistication of the United States should have done so badly. Um, there are very interesting divergences in Europe between, let's say, Germany um, and the United Kingdom. Uh, Germany did about six times better in terms of death rates per per million than the United Kingdom. And that does look to be closely linked to their ability to get on uh, on top of this disease because of the way their government works, partly because of the speed of government, but partly because of local health authorities, which seem to have been very good at distributing PPE, um, and tests and test and trace and things like that. And the final, yeah. say mm-hmm. no, go on. Yeah, the final thing I would say was that the success in delivering the COVID um, response through better government, which I think is true of of China, uh, Taiwan, um, Singapore, and a, a list of such countries is also, in my mind, highly correlated with other uh, tests of good government, such as improving education results, improving healthcare results, uh, uh, and improving effectiveness in creating sort of smart digital networks and things like that. So it's not an isolated test. It's, um, it, it's one that's correlated with other abilities. But I must say, uh, you've raised an extremely interesting point uh, about, about your own country, and you don't think that's to do, because I don't know the details here. Is it to do at all with the ability of the country to isolate itself by closing the airports?
0: I, I don't think so at all. They, right. Particularly in Trinidad and Tobago, because we don't have a large tourist sector, unlike places like Jamaica or Antigua or Barbados, yeah. right? And uh, it, it, I, I think there are, there are other things, but we don't have to get into that that debate right. here. But and and I don't think this undermines what you're saying. I I, I want to say that. Um, but but I do think that that the numbers do need to be looked at um, uh, more holistically sure. and and critically. Sure. But I, as I said, I I
1: do not think it undermines your argument. But I I wanted to point that out. Well, um, the other big question about the mm-hmm. numbers is the question about the Chinese numbers because a lot of people think that the Chinese are concealing. Um, the, the levels uh, of, of, of of death and disease. Yeah. And it's quite possible that that's true. They certainly started off, you know, the, the 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 initial reason why this disease got out of control so quickly is that the Wuhan province um, authorities tried to, to conceal the fact that it was happening at all in the first place. But I think there are lots of pieces of evidence that would indicate that the level uh, of disease now, it may not be three per million, as they claim, but it, that it's... Mm-hmm wildly above that you know that it's not the same level as it is in the United States if you talk to people in China you know the big cities are now operating again almost as normal Wuhan seems to be operating again almost as mm-hmm. an, and the most important test which is the test of uh, you know industrial production that they are seem to be almost back to running a, a normal full-scale economy and that is definitely not the case in Britain and the United States.
0: Yeah, man, yeah. and that is is something I I definitely want to um, ask about. And, and there, there was a question, an intermediate question, but I'll skip that because since you raised it, you know, I I wanted to even ask the question. You know, is the problem COVID itself, or or is it the lockdowns? And because, as I was saying, you know, many of these these countries. Um, you know, have, have lower rates, and I, I don't know how much it's, that's a, uh, a factor uh, related to testing. You know, when you don't test, you don't get the numbers. Um, th- that might be part of it. Or I don't know how much it's globalization or isolation or, or whatever. But, um, but certainly, um, just, I mean, the lockdown itself, the, you know, the, the unprecedented steps taken by Western governments to purposely quite consciously locked down the global economy for nine months 10 months and a willingness apparently to to go on for a year for this has never been done purposely before i mean and there's there's no way any any planner any forecaster could have not foreseen the effects on small businesses, on international trade, on the airline industry, on on the middle class, and small businesses. This um, and and also on things like civil liberties, uh, and and with the um, extreme censorship right now of criticism, as well, uh, uh you know, and the abandonment of, of government restraint and and limitations, even on things like borrowing and printing money, it's, it's as if all the foundational aspects of, of what you might associate with Western governments have been thrown out the window. Uh, I, totally. Constitutions, uh, uh, and that itself uh, may be a symptom of the sickness of the West. Uh, what do well, it, you say it, to that? It's an,
1: extraordinary thing. it's an extraordinary, unprecedented thing that's, that, that, that's happened. Uh, not just that we've closed down large chunks of the economy um, through, through lockdowns, but that we've taken away the most basic of all liberties, which is the liberty to, to leave your house and associate with other people. Um, mm-hmm. This is utterly, utterly uh, unprecedented. But this is one of the reasons why we start off our book by talking about Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, because Thomas Hobbes says that the fundamental role of the state, uh, the fundamental function of the state, is to save people from unnecessary death, um, to save them from dying. His, he's talking about the fact that people in the state of nature, in his view, will, will commit violence to each other because they're driven by jealousy and, 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 and rage. Um, and he says the only way they can get out of that is by giving up all their powers over their lives to the state. But um, we're saying in this that the only way that we can prevent people from spreading Um, a plague, essentially, is by closing down the economy and locking them down. That is an extraordinary thing to say, but it may Mm -hmm. be true because that is surely the fundamental role of the state is to to protect people from unnecessary death. And the extraordinary thing about this disease is that it's extremely easy to spread and that it affects people with pre-existing medical conditions or people over a certain age very, very badly. But what's also true is that some people have it, and it, you know, hardly affects them at all. Or it, you know, it's 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 like a, a dose of the flu. And in general, younger people don't suffer anything like as, uh, as seriously from it as older people do. So we have made a conscious decision to close down the economy, to restrict people's basic freedoms, um, and uh, in order to save um, the lives of basically older older people um, i think that's the right decision but it's it's a, it's a very big big and difficult decision to make and you've got a lot of in britain it's a, it, it's becoming increasingly controversial we have a big lockdown on at the moment and the interesting thing is that the resistance to this lockdown is coming from two very very different groups of people it's coming from people on the right of the conservative party who say that it's ruining the economy, it's protecting a very few, uh, a small number of lives, it's adversely affecting the young. Uh, And this is just unjust, you shouldn't do this, you know. Um, And it's also coming, and also people on the far left uh, saying that this is just, you know, this is an example of the state overstepping its mark, uh, taking power away from other people. There's a lot of conspiracy theories also going around, particularly on the far left. Um, But these these are very, very legitimate, uh worries, not the conspiracy theories, but the worries about the power mm-hmm. of the state. And I think is what's very, very important in the future is that once this pandemic is over, and once we have a vaccine that that works and herd immunity and the rest of it, that we withdraw all of these powers of surveillance and monitoring people that, 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 that the state has, has taken up during the during the pandemic, so all the most—it's fascinating, really, because all the most fundamental questions of political theory: what is the state for? What are the proper limits on the power of the state? What do we have to do uh, legitimately to, to to monitor people who might be spreading disease? Um, uh, uh, you know, have been right at the center of this of this COVID debate.
0: Yes, very, very much. I mean, political philosophy becomes very real, you know, and in really like exactly this. the right word. Yeah. yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah, um, you know, and the way you characterize COVID as a kind of global exam, a stress test, is, is a very interesting um, way to look at it. And 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 if we we take a, a longer view, um, slightly longer, not going to sixteen hundred, but let's say you know post uh, Cold War mm-hmm. Cold War era, uh, I suppose the world may have gone through two other stress tests, I might say. Uh, 9/11 and the global terrorism, uh, and and then the rise of the surveillance state in a sense, and and the Great Recession of of 2008. Tho- those also seem to be some sort of global stress tests that we were facing. Would you agree? And how does this compare? If you do agree,
1: I agree absolutely. Um, I would say that this is bigger, actually. But you had two very different tests there. The uh, mm-hmm. 11 and the war on terrorism, which uh, resulted from that, you know, it was a huge shock to the financial markets, a huge shock to America and American power. Um, so, uh, in that sense, it was a, it was a vast stress test, um, but it very rapidly re- turned into something which was quite familiar in the sense that it turned into. A sort of uh, a projection of American power abroad and um, a question of how well you could use military power to reach certain ends. Um, and this COVID thing is, you know, much, much more peculiar than that because the rate of spread of the disease is so, is so dramatic. The hit, on the hit to the overall economy is so much bigger and the the future is so much more difficult to predict because this may be the first of a whole series of coronavirus, um, you know, problems. Yeah, may well there may well be more. And uh, September the uh, sorry, and uh, the global financial crisis. Well, that was an extraordinary, disconcerting thing, um, very damaging and damaging for years to come. But it was a sort of it was a sort of repeat of what we'd seen in the nineteen thirties. I think the coronavirus, you know, we have seen global pandemics before, but never when the world has been as globalized as this. Um, and we've never seen it spreading quite so so rapidly, I, I, I think, as this. And as I say, if this, and many people do think this, this is the first of a series of pandemics that we're going to have because of the globalization of the economy and the way that, that human life is now impinging more and more on You know, biological populate new biological populations that might have various diseases within them. Now,
0: a historiographical point that I might Mm -hmm. want to raise, a a minor one, uh, at least minor in terms of your argument, but but something uh, uh, that that is dear to me personally um, is I I was very interested in in your. Sort of uh, your concentration on the West and 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 yeah, uh, fixation might be too strong a word, but um, but you know needing to wake up. You know, coming from the Caribbean, we, we're in an interesting intermediary position. You know, uh, kind of of the West, but kind of not uh, as well. And uh, but I, I did find that um, you know some of the the characterizations I might say would be a bit uh, orientalist in a way, you know, describing the East as a kind of. Uh, oppressive tyranny uh, and, and the West, you know, with freedom and human rights. This, um, I mean, the, the reality of the world, is, as you well know, as a as someone, you know, uh, who's traveled a lot and, and, and are very familiar with, with uh, countries around the world, it's, it's, things aren't that stark between um, East and West. And, and as I said, right now, you know, a, a lot of freedoms and, and rights in the West are, are being Uh, eroded uh, and uh, so forth. And, um, yeah, so I was just interested because I I also heard another interview you had done with John Micklethwaith and you were talking about, um, you know, the importance of uniting the West and seeing China as a kind of rival. So uh, is could you expand on that? It it, it sounds kind of like a, a Cold Warrior, Orientalist sort of... Sure. a framework you're working with. So I'd just like you to expand on
1: it. Sure. Uh, I, I, and I think it's, it's, it's... I can see your difficulties, particularly um, sitting where you're, where you're sitting. And the West, uh, we would like to say, we don't mean by the West particularly a geographical expression. We mean by the West um, a set of values. And those values are belief in the individual, belief in freedom... Um, belief ultimately in democracy, certainly in accountable and limited government and but we do think that those that set of values did arise in a particular part of the world at a particular time mm-hmm. um, basically, they arose in in Europe we um, mm-hmm. uh, you know with the Renaissance and the Reformation and the enlightenment um, and they uh, then taken to the United States, and they did not arise in China. China has a civilization which is based on a very different uh, on based on a very different set of values, based on much more sense of hierarchy, subordination of the individual to the to, to the collective, uh, um, and I think ultimately sort of uh, obedience to the whole. Now, I think that those you know the West. This set of values, this 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 liberal paradigm which I've presented, did very, very many bad things um, with, with the dynamism uh, and power that it created. Um, it you know, it's it colonized the world, um, it enslaved people, um, and it's created all sorts of appalling, appalling Mayhem, as a result of its sheer sort of energy and brio and um, creativity, uh, for which I think the West ought to apologize, and uh, you know, and it has left a lot of mess in its wake. But nevertheless, there are a series of core things which I think were uniquely powerful in this particular culture and civilization, and which are not right at the core of Chinese civilization. So what um I would would say, is that um, the West has done very many bad things, but I would rather have a world governed by the West than the world governed by China. And I think that we are moving to a world in which China, Chinese culture and Chinese civilization will be the dominant form of culture and civilization unless we do something to revive the West. Now, And part of reviving the West may well be to say, not using this geographical expression, but talking about you know democracies or, or or some broader more neutral thing than that but I do think there is a certain there is a certain certain set, set of cultural attributes which uh, have not been developed universally in all cultures at all times have emerged at certain cultures at certain times and you know China uh, if it does become the dominant power of the future will will that does that that worries me actually you say it's a new cold War, Sort of thing. Um, to some extent, that's true, but it's, um, it's it's a note of caution, I think, about about um, about what China wants to do with its obviously much greater power. Okay. Yes,
0: I. I... I understand that position, and and yeah, it's it's, it's a valid position to take, obviously. And, and there is no doubt, as as you do say in your book, there are observable differences in the East and West. When you, as you say in the book, when you go from LaGuardia to any to you know Changi Airport or or wherever in in Asia, even when you go on the plane itself, there are noticeable differences. And I mean, Absolutely. I yeah, and I mean, I would have seen that. Even from the 1990s, I I was so um, I was so surprised uh, how you know that the future was really in Asia. You know, in terms of uh, technology and you know even the, the cleanliness of the cities and and the positive outlook for the future. I, I think that that's a very important thing. Um, the, you know, it, it was maybe like the West in the 50s or 60s when when people Absolutely. felt that there was. There was, uh, you know, their children would definitely do way better than them versus the nihilism and, and pessimism uh, in in the West, and and there there is a difference, and it's 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 not only the, the sort of negative difference that that the West has these positive values and the East doesn't. There 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 is a different dynamic taking place in those two realms, and and obviously the world is not just those two realms. There are other places in Africa and the Caribbean and Latin America. And and Central Asia, but but if we take that kind of East Asia, Southeast Asia versus versus the West, there there is that stark difference. And um, I don't know if you want to comment on that further.
1: Absolutely, I think one of the most interesting thing that's happened in the world since really, I suppose, the 1990s is a global redistribution of optimism.
0: That mm-hmm.
1: most optimism in the world, if you if if, if you can yeah. in those terms. Was, was in the West. It was in, it was in Europe after the Second World War when we had this massive reconstruction of Europe. Uh, it was in the United States, uh, which has always been a very optimistic uh, place, but was certainly extraordinarily optimistic from the, the, from the 1950s onwards when so many people were doing so well. And, you know, you had a very stoical and pessimistic view of the world in, 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 in China and the rest of the world. And now, if you travel around the world, Optimism. You don't find much optimism in the United States, perhaps a boost in optimism since since Trump has been uh, uh, voted out, but not that much optimism in general. Most people don't think their parents, their children are going to do better than they did. Um, Not much optimism, I can tell you, in in Britain. We're now a very dour and pessimistic lot. But you go to China um, or Singapore, and basically people think the world is getting better and will get a lot better. Uh, they think that their children will do much better than they will. And quite a lot, I think in China, uh, I do notice in China, there's a sort of basic quiet confidence that China is, that they've had 500 years of marginalization and uh, humiliation, but now they're back in their rightful place as one of the world's great civilizations and probably the, the dominant civilization of the, of the of the next century. So absolutely, you're, you're, you're right. Optimism is different. Another thing I think is is, is quite different is is, is public projects. If we look at America in the 1950s. It was full of these marvelous public projects—you know, these skyscrapers, these uh, railway stations, these public buildings, United Nations—all these marvelous sort of statements uh, made in in concrete and and, and steel. Um, you don't see that anymore. Um, it takes 20 years to to to, to get planning permission to, to to change your front door in the United States. Whereas if you go to um, China. They're building bridges. They're building. Uh, they they're they're building highways. They're building uh, railroads, high speed railroads, and they're build. They're building, you know, a- airports. So it's you know, you go to you get on the air, the, the train to go from Shanghai to uh, Beijing. You're in a different world, a different century from the train that takes you from New York to Washington DC. You know?
0: Absolutely.
1: Uh, or, or if you go to you know Shanghai Airport, it's, it's, it's a different world from L- Liguari. You can see America decaying, uh, mm-hmm. rise, and it's not just public projects. It's, it's sort of there's a slovenliness about things, there's a dirtiness about things. Which, which you go to a, a lot of China or, or certainly Singapore, you're seeing higher standards, more self respect. Um.
0: Yeah. Yeah, t- I totally agree and uh, and um and one other thing i i'd like to to say to to go back to that theme about the west and, and cuz you mentioned it that that china th- uh and the east itself you know sees itself as coming back. and and it's very important. now, i i I don't mean to to guilt trip you or anything like that, right? So you don't have to personally apologize for the West at all. don't don't think i'm I'm making you try to do that, right? But um, but certainly, uh, I mean, I'm I'm happy with with bits of your histori- historiography because it does represent a huge change. I remember from when I was a student in the '80s in terms of understanding the world. That you know, this idea that the West was always on top, but but you, it's it's clear now the part of the mainstream discourse that yes, that there have been ups and downs, and in 1600, as you say. You know, the world was, was, you know, the West was not on top, even though, you know, Columbus had been, you know, the the colonies were there in in Spain and and whatnot, but still, you know, the Ottomans and Mughals were, those are much wealthier empires and states than than in the West at the time. But, you know, 1600 is a very interesting date uh, for me in particular. You can't see me, but I'm I'm of Indian uh, descent. And 1600 is the year that the East India Company uh, was incorporated, right. and and I yep. I certainly do think that uh, the East India Company, in particular, um, uh, had a huge role to play in both the the decline of the East of of India and the difference between India and China is something maybe that could be explored elsewhere at another time. But but in India, and then later on through the Opium Wars and. Mm-hmm. and so forth in china and and also the the rise of 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 the west it's very interesting that john Stuart mill himself was a lifelong employee of Sure. sure but um but yeah that that um that the rise of the east i mean the rise of the west and the the decay of the east because i'm I'm pretty sure you're probably referring to Angus Madison's um figures. Sure. About, sure. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yep. Yep. And and when you when you look at his his figures, I mean it's it is astonishing that right up to the nineteenth century, um, you know, India and China were like forty percent of global GDP, um, when you take it yep. percentage wise. And then it's an astonishing collapse. An astonishing collapse in the um, latter half of the 19th century yeah that needs to be explained that that's not just a, uh, a, a decay a, a cultural decay, decay you know and um, so I, I I mean now in, in a sense the whys may not matter so much but but I do think in, in the historiography it's important uh, to account for uh, do you have any comment on that
1: yeah I think what, what, what you get from 1600 onwards? is the establishment of states that work um, in uh, Western Europe, but also the projection of European power um, abroad. Um, and the East India Company is a particularly um, interesting example of that because the East India Company is, is really not a company in the modern sense of the word. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a state-owned company. It's, you know, it's an instrument of, instrument of power licensed by Elizabeth I., uh, and also given sort of various uh, jobs to do, specific jobs to do by the government. it's it's it's, it's an arm of the state as well as a, a, as well as a company return, giving returns to its investors. Uh, and what you get, obviously there are many other companies, the the, the Dutch East India, uh, as a prime example of that, but they do project Western power abroad. Uh, And they do uh, exercise extraordinary control. I mean, the East India Company essentially takes over India and becomes the government of India, uh, and then the open wars. But why they're so powerful um, is partly because the West is powerful, but also partly because the East is in some way weaker. Certainly, China, um, because it hasn't innovated for so long, is essentially laid low by the Western trainers but traders by the East India Company just because it's sort of it stopped itself um, doing any of these things it stopped looking outwards it stopped innovating it stopped um, scientific um, experiments and things like that it's it's sort of it's sort of frozen and ossified so when they when it suddenly encounters this much more Vibrant civilization, it collapses. And what worries worries me is that that the reverse is beginning to happen. That we are the people who have stopped innovating. We've become complacent. We've become inward looking. By we, I mean the British and particularly the Americans. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that we are going to see the see see the reverse of that. And the the fragility of these systems. You know, you collapse under. You know, how many people did the East India Company employ when it essentially subdued India? I mean, mm-hmm. not tens of thousands. I mean, yeah. a, a very small number of people. Yeah. And it did that. Although the sepoys were, um, were a big yeah, number. Yeah, exactly. Because, the company, <laughs> because they got a lot of collaboration internally, also, but also because the ruling classes in in, in India were fairly decadent. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: They,
1: they, they, weren't, they weren't innovating. They weren't improving their government systems. They couldn't raise armies very efficiently. And they were willing to sell out to foreigners mm-hmm. uh, because, there is internal competitions, so um, it is an extraordinary thing. But when you were talking about the, earlier about Columbus, I think Columbus's ship was nineteen meters long, and at mm-hmm. the same time, the Chinese navy had a lot of ships which were one hundred and fifty. Uh, Absolutely. Um, if, so it, we were just we, they would have looked at us and thought, "Who on earth are these people?" Uh, mm-hmm. or, Westerners and said, who earth are these people? We're a much more powerful, mighty civilization. And yet with his tiny ship, Columbus, you who know, was part of this great exploration and conquest of, uh, of, of America. Um, right. The, uh, the interesting lesson there is that countries can decay very quickly and they can rise very quickly, that history can change very, very quickly, that you, know, you can go from Admiral He." looking down on Western ships as being mere minnows to the Chinese suddenly saying, you know, they, they eventually decided, I think in 1660, I think it was to destroy their whole Navy because they didn't want anything to do with the rest of the world and just abandoned the whole incredible naval tradition that they would built up. All
0: right. Now, now let's look at the the reverse um, aspect from the sixties about the rise of Asia you know, and, and the decline yep. of the West. Uh, just, just, um, briefly, because I, I don't want to take you too much over, and, and we are uh, closing in. But um, why why would you say the decline happened in the West? I mean, would would you link it to you know the, the ending of the classic Bretton Woods system, the stagflation, the massive inequality that came after uh, Im, immigration? I, I you know bad money. The, the, what would you what would you put it to, toward a, a cultural thing? Well what's your
1: experience? I mean that's an extraordinarily good question. I mean if you look at the 1960s that was the time when as it were the west was at its height and the east was at its depth uh in the sense that we were in the west the United States was thinking about putting a man on the moon uh Lyndon Johnson was talking about the great society that would abolish poverty forever there was an extraordinary confidence and it was a confidence that focused on government you know putting a man on the moon was what the government did um Abolishing poverty was what the government did. Um, so it was a, a time of great confidence, a great cof- confidence in state capacity. At the same time, in China, you had massive famines created by the government, essentially. You had just mm-hmm. like Mao Zedong's project of, of, of ridding the country of sparrows, um, you know, a complete waste of, uh, 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 of time as well as an ecological disaster. Um, and the Cultural Revolution, which tore the country, Apart. So that was the sort of the height of the West um, and the low point of the East. And things begin to change just exactly as you've said, very, very dramatically in the 1960s. I think it's because partly because people fell out of, gov- of love with government. They thought it got too big. Uh, they thought it had got too sluggish. They thought it was doing things that it couldn't do. I think uh, the collapse of Bretton Woods, the gold uh, br- the system, um coming off gold and the rest of it was was was, was uh, dramatically bad uh the, the oil shock uh, creating stagflation i think everything that happened it looked as though everything that the west tried to do abolish poverty well poverty poverty is abolished win the war in vietnam well america loses the war in vietnam um the one thing of those that, that does actually work is putting a man on the moon. But most of what they try and do with government doesn't work. So they say their conclusion is there's too much government. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to cut it down. Well, there may have been too much government. It may have been too much, but there was too much. Of, there was an overcorrection that went on there. But the other thing, it's not just that the West became stagnant, stopped reinventing government, lost its confidence in government, but it's something that happened in the East. And that's something I think is really Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you comes to power and says that the only way I'm going to turn this country into a global success story is by very vigorous government. We're going to have meritocratic government, which selects people ruthlessly on merit, awards good salaries to people who are good, sacks people who are bad. We're going to have an abstemious welfare state that uh, limits what it does, does help people, but is a very abstemious sort of help. And we're going to have a developmental government that develops the power of the market, that that uses the the government power to improve the market. That that does that by um, investing in in manufacturing, investing in knowledge economy, investing in high tech, um, setting the rules that encourage global investors to come and turn Singapore into an entrepreneur. So you have this new view of the state as a dynamic, meritocratic, wealth. Um, creating machine that Lee Kuan Yew has. And that view transforms Singapore. It transforms um, variants of that view, transform um, South Korea and other countries. And now it's China is looking at that model of the state and imitating it. So I, I talked earlier about how the West had invented and reinvented views of the state had a succession of new models of the state that had kept it very state-sector dynamic. That now is happening in in the East, starting with Singapore, spreading to China, a new view of the state, how you develop its capacities, how how, how you govern a country. And this is the first time uh, since 1500 that the most successful ideas of state-building state capacity have not been produced by the West, but have been produced uh, produced again, actually, well, embraced by China, produced by Singapore. Yeah. You
0: know, I, I'd like to suggest that um, it, that the, everything you mentioned be also put into another context, which is decolonization. Because yeah. Lee Kuan Yew could not have happened without independence. And from the 1960s, you had these independence movements throughout the world. The UN membership was changing from, I think it was 48 countries or so, um, you know, after the war, and t- now it's like 120 or something. Yep. Uh, and and, and the, dy- the global dynamics change with, with um, many, you know, former colonial countries, um, you know, having, having a, a pride of, 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 of ownership. Of course, in many countries, they, they made a mess of it, but, but there were, you know, others like uh, Singapore, that, um you know that that really took their independence and and ran with it in in an in a way that could not have happened under colonialism uh for them at least
1: you're absolutely um, right and I think we don't mm-hmm. emphasize that enough in the in in the book it, it, it is a post-colonial world that uh is being built um there and they have they they only have the freedom to to design their own state systems in Singapore because they threw off the British yoke. And it's very interesting now that Singapore has significantly better educational results than, than Britain, has longer life expectancy than Britain, has a higher standard of living than Britain. So they've not only thrown off their colonial master, but they've they've completely outclassed it in the way that they've run their own country. So it's absolutely right that, that, that decolonization um, is, 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 is a key to this. Um, and it's also, of course, you know this 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 singapore model is now being imitated by a lot of countries around the world not just by china but by other countries that that think it's the the the, the key to you know running a successful emerging market
0: yes you know and and this takes us to your conclusion in fact uh, in the book when you when you uh Kind of create this Frankenstein of um, yeah. Gladstone and um, and Lincoln, Bill Bill Lincoln, which sounds very much like Bill Clinton yeah, <laughs> when you be. say it fast, yes. <laughs> and uh, if you're not paying attention. But um, and uh, yeah, and and so you you suggest uh, ways for the West. To, um, to remedy all, all of this. And uh, y- you have wrong answers, like, you know, it's Trump's fault, fault or, or autocracy works or we need more government. And then you have a, a series of, of right answers, one of which includes, you know, following some of uh, Singapore's uh, models with the public service, paying top civil servants a million dollars, etc. Uh, can you just lay out some of that for us?
1: Yes, well, what we did in this book was to... Uh, we what we wanted to give a series of uh, of solutions to how government should be done better but we thought just writing a list of these things would be um perhaps a bit long-winded and tedious. so we invented a figure and the figure we invented was basically a composite of um Abraham Lincoln um and uh, and uh, William Gladstone two sort of mid 19th century reformers great politicians who put uh, reforming and improving government at the very heart of what they were about. And these are figures in the liberal tradition. And these were figures who um, changed the world. And we wanted to say, well, let's have a composite of him, um, call him Bill Lincoln and say to him, you're allowed to, You're you, what we want, want you to do is to improve American government, make American government great again. Um, and... The constraint we'll put put on you is you're only allowed to borrow things from from countries that are already doing them. So instead of inventing science fiction solutions, they have to invent solutions borrowed from places that already work. And what we concluded from this was that if you actually go around the world and look around the world, there are lots and lots of examples that America could be learning from. Um, And we categorize a number of ways in which America could be learning, certainly from Singapore. Um, because they have a very meritocratic system which allows government employees to be paid very generously if they're very good, but also sacked if they're not very good, whereas in America, it all tends to be crunched towards the middle. People have jobs for life, but they're not paid that much. Um, But also other countries, um, we we, we thought that they might borrow from. Um, Much of the Far East has been much better at at adapting technological innovation. You know, if, if you look at the technology that's, uh, that, that that's used to run the sh- uh, underground system in, in in Shanghai for example or in in um, uh, Seoul uh, in South Korea it's far advanced of anything that you see in America so we say um, America needs more competition uh, for talent from the public sector it also needs to start adapting, um, technology from the private sector, bringing it into the public sector, so that the public sector is in the same technological era. Uh, and we also come out with an idea, which is not about technology in particular, which is about reconnecting the the elites with their state. That what one of the things that's happened since the 1960s is that the elites have become increasingly separated from government. The top people quite often no, no longer go into government; they prefer to go into the private sector. And many young people from the better-off classes um, don't really have very much to do with government at all, uh, w- with the public sector. The only uh, they don't have very much to do quite often with, with people who are poorer than them. You know, the only time when they meet people who are poorer than them is when those people bring you know FedEx packages to their door. Uh, so what we decided was that you should have a system of scholarships whereby the state. Um, finds really bright young people, pays for their education, pays for their university education, but as a sort of quid pro quo for all of that, expects them to go and work in the public sector for a number of years. We thought that would be a way of getting really bright young people into the public sector. But we also suggest a a system of national service, by which we don't Mm -hmm. mean military national service, um, but we do mean sort of civic national service, whereby everybody um, has to spend, say, a year working in the public sector working for the government doing things for the for the public good before you know after university or before university as a way of reconnecting you know talented people or you know reconnecting the young population in general with the public sector because it does seem to be something that's been marginalized downgraded and which people don't really identify with anymore in the way in the way that they did in the time of um, john f kennedy
0: Right now, um, so with with your um, your suggestions, and, and, and there are very many and, and, and very thoughtful, uh, interesting ones. Now, where where do you see this going in real life? Where where do you see government in the West going? You know, in, in uh, and in you know, in the context of the reforms you mentioned. I, I guess the U.S. election is is as good as a backdrop as any to um, to to put it against.
1: Yeah, I, I, I I've been moderately encouraged. What we found with this book is that because of the we, we found the COVID crisis has demonstrated the points that we made. We made it. We wrote it. Uh, you know, you know, in the basically came out in the in the summer, um, and we found that everything that's we uh, predicted or agonised about has been true. That the America has made a mess of things. Britain has made a mess of things. Uh, China has uh, improved its performance very significantly. So we feel as though we've been vindicated there. Um, but one of the things that we've noticed is that we've got an enormous amount of response from this book. Um, a lot of people in government have contacted us, in politics have contacted us to say, you're really onto something, this is true. And also increasingly now, governments are actually, not governments, I mean, people, interested parties, are setting up think tanks, setting up commissions, setting up uh, inquiries as to why government got things wrong. So I think there is a lot of recognition in Britain and America in particular that things didn't go at all well and a lot of recognition that they need to ask some very fundamental questions and introduce some very fundamental reforms. Now, whether that actually goes anywhere, the public sector government has an enormous capacity to resist change. And I think if we do get out of this coronavirus slump, people have an enorm- will have an enormous capacity to forget about it all and, you know, and, and try and just think about the future. Mm-hmm. Just keep on hammering away that we need to think seriously about government and government reform. Right. Well, I
0: mean, this is very much a, a message book and, and we have... An- that might be the message there. I usually like to ask the authors uh, at the end, you know, what message would you like to leave your readers with? Uh, was that
1: it? Well, that's basically to it, say government matters, government is the difference between life and death, that you cannot assume that your government is, uh, is the best government in the world. Um, that in fact, what we've seen is many people, many governments that people have assumed to be quite good, like our government here in Britain, have proved to be really not that good. And the only way to keep them good is to constantly reform them, improve them and look at the rest of the world to see how, how things are being done best. And what the, the benefits of this extraordinary awful tragedy of coronavirus is it has given us a chance to look at the rest of the world and to, to see, um, you know, who's doing well and who's doing badly.
0: Well, I know uh, in, in closing that, you know, you're working, you constantly are working on projects, but is there anything in particular that you'd like our audience to know about now? Do you have a special website outside of The Economist that you'd like people to oh, know I, about?
1: I don't actually. I, I No, I don't. I'm sorry. I, I I should do. I mean, I do blog. Uh, sorry, I do t- tweet at, mm-hmm. at AD Wooldridge. AD Woolridge. Right. And so I, you know, I try and try to tweet every, every, every day, but, um, blogging, I'm afraid would be too much for me at, uh, yeah. at the moment. You, you have a busy up. schedule. I have a busy schedule, but thank you so much for this interview. It's incredibly kind of you.
0: Thank you. Well, yeah, I wanted to thank you because it's been very stimulating and informative and I very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Once again, the book is The Wake-Up Call, Why the Pandemic Has Exposed the Weakness of the West and How to Fix It. And we've been speaking to one of the co-authors, Adrian Woolridge. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.